we do have the greatest message that's ever been given uh, to tell. And uh, I'm going to start by mentioning this. Um, you know those little things that you can buy in the uh, tech stores? Um, those little towers, and you speak into them, and they answer you. Ours, uh, we talk to Alexa. And um, the other one is the um, Google Home. All right, you heard about the issue this past week, right? Yeah, big issue. Alexa knows the answer. Google Home doesn't know the answer. You say, Alexa, who is Jesus Christ? And she'll say, Jesus Christ is the leader of the Christian faith. He lived many years ago. I'm summarizing. Uh, well, we, I should have brought my tower here and we could answer. <laughs> but you ask Google Home, I do not know the answer. You can ask it again. And people were not happy about that. Not happy at all this past week. Um, we know who Jesus is, don't we? He's the glorious Son of God who left the glories of heaven, came down to the earth, took upon himself flesh and blood, was born of a virgin, lived in a sinless life, willingly went to the cross and died there for our sins, third day rose again, was on the earth for 40 days and then ascended back up into heaven. That's Jesus Christ, the one who died, paid the price for our sins. This morning we are going to uh, focus on who Jesus is. In fact, uh, we're going to focus on a man who was given the responsibility of being the forerunner of Christ, and that's John the Baptist. And actually, our consideration this morning works very well into our theme for the new year, renewing our passion for Christ and his church. Uh, John the Baptist had a tremendous passion for Christ. He knew that Jesus Christ came as the promised one to take care of the sins of the people of Israel and for the sins of the whole nations of the, all the nations of the earth. And so he had a tremendous love and passion for Jesus Christ. We'll try to bring this out this morning. In fact, it's very interesting. When you go into the Word of God, you see that Jesus said this. He said, Truly I say to you, among those who are born of women... There has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Matthew 11, 11. No one was greater than John the Baptist. Wow. So we ask questions and we've heard questions asked. Um, what makes a person truly great? Well, again, put this into Google. I asked the question, um, who were great political leaders? Oh, brother, you should see the list. Oh, man. I guess that what they're saying is some were great in goodness. Others were great in evil. And uh, they're mixed in the list that you get. I'm only going to mention the good ones. <laughs> great individuals, great political leaders. Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Richard the Lionheart. I don't know anything about him. 
not a thing. And I probably looked a little bit about him, read a little bit about him in history. But it's real interesting. They had other very evil men listed as great political leaders. Um, in the world's eyes, greatness comes as a result of being born into a famous, wealthy, or influential family. In the world's eyes, earning a great deal of money leads to greatness. Having great expertise in a particular given field. Having outstanding athletic ability. Having high political office or military office. These things, in the world's eyes, contribute to greatness. However, it's very interesting that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, who Jesus says was the greatest man that ever lived until that day when he mentioned it, really had none of those as such. It's interesting, the subject of greatness. John's greatness actually was related to the fact that he was the herald of Jesus Christ. He was the one chosen by God who would be born. In fact, he experienced a miraculous birth as well because his parents were very elderly when he was born. John the Baptist was the man who was chosen to get people to be prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ who was coming to give his life for mankind. He was called a herald. And a herald in that day uh, preceded the arrival of a monarch or a king. Two Ps. Number one, they would proclaim his coming. They would say, the king is coming. Jesus Christ is coming. The Messiah is coming. And then they would prepare the way for the king. Uh, a herald in that day for any particular king. They would make sure the roads were prepared. And uh, things. There were no, no, nothing, there were, nothing was there to block uh, people being able to come to see the monarch or for the monarch to get into the presence of his people. It's an interesting subject, this subject of greatness. And uh, I, I started doing a little, little more reading in the area this week. And um, those who know Christ, in fact, um, turn with me to Mark 10, if you would. Mark chapter 10. Those who know Christ have given three characteristics or essentials for greatness. And, of course, they're based on what Jesus said, Mark 10:42, And we're not going to look at all the um, preceding context of this. But in Mark 10:42, chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus said um, to the disciples, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. Very true. And their great ones, there it is the word, there's the word, exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great, there's the word again, among you shall be your what? Tell me what it is. Servant. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be the servant of all or slave of all, some translations say. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Very interesting. So you can see that when Jesus describes greatness, he does not describe it as the world describes greatness. Those who have acquired a lot of money, those who are born in prestigious families, all these kinds of things. So therefore, those who uh, do some study in the area of greatness, based on what Jesus said, say that there are three characteristics to greatness. I'm going to mention them. One... 
is humility. Humility. And wow. I have heard people say down through the years, talking about someone who is perhaps well-known, sometimes even in Christian circles, boy, that person's a re- really a proud person. Wow. Mm. Lord, help us, please. Humility. Second one, second characteristic, effectiveness, or sometimes people use the word competence. Great people are those who can accomplish things, get things done, effectiveness. And the third one is, tying into the words of Jesus, willingness to serve. Willingness to serve. Willingness to help others. We saw this in so many of the songs this morning about reaching out to those who do not know Christ as Savior. Um, Howard Hendricks, who is uh, quite a, well, he's with the Lord now, who uh, established the uh, Center for Leadership in Dallas Seminary. He used to say, and I never forgot, I wrote it down in my Bible, and I had people through the years say, boy, I wish they would have heard those years ago. Some guys who were managers. I'm talking about managers in businesses. I wish I'd heard the three years ago. Because in some circles, even in Christian circles, they look at two and they forget about this third one. And Howard Hendricks said, that's often where they go wrong. Okay, here's the three C's. This is for free now. There's no charge for this. The first one is character. You always, you always want an individual who has character. All right? That's very important. All right? The second one is competence. You're always looking for somebody who can do the job, get it done. But Dr. Hendricks used to say, sometimes what people fail to pull with regards to someone to come involved in working in a business, in a ministry. Please don't miss this one. This is the one he says, people miss. Anybody know what the word is, the third C? Well, that's kind of tied in with the other, but it's chemistry. In other words, you have your team already. You have people who serve Christ. Or you have people in your business. You already have your team. I I pray with some individuals who... um, work in teams in, in banks and things and they're in a team. Okay, so they want to bring a new guy in. Well, they want to bring in a guy who has um, character. They want to bring a guy who has competence. But the problem is they don't question or talk to the individual enough to see that he has the chemistry to serve with the team that's already established. Does that make sense? Kind of shake your hands a little bit. Very important. <laughs> Very important. And uh, wow. Dr. Hendricks had a lot of wisdom, and he had a lot of wisdom in the area of leadership. And uh, God has used and blessed him for this. Well, John the Baptist was a very interesting individual, and he was great. Jesus said he was great. In fact, there are many things we will learn when we come to the conclusion this morning about John the Baptist. But one of the things we realize, in fact, one of the most important things about John the Baptist was that he had a passion for Christ. See, this is what we're developing in this year. All of us would say, you know, Lord, I, I want to I love you more. I want to realize that you are my Lord and my Savior. And I want to grow closer to you. I want to be doing your will. A passion for Christ. John 
the Baptist had it. In fact, he said in John chapter 3, verse 30, he said, He must increase. I must decrease. Christ needs to be lifted up. I'm just here as a voice to communicate to you that Jesus has come. Through his preaching and teaching and baptizing, he prepared the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the sent one of God. In fact, the Jewish leaders, uh, people were coming from all over the land of what we call today the land of Israel to hear John. And uh, the Jewish leaders sent out a committee to question him and said, uh, well, who are you? And he said, well, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the promised one. Well, then, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not Elijah. Are you that prophet? And that's an interesting one, by the way. That goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. I had the privilege a number of years ago when I was at the state fair. There was a, a Jewish lady right across from me. And I wanted to witness to her about Jesus. And I talked about the Bible. And she said, I only read five books of the Bible. That's it. None. none no other books. No other books in the Old Testament. No other books in the New Testament. I thought, wow, this is going to be a tough one <laughs> to find a verse for. This is going to be tough. But I found one where God said, I'm going to send a prophet. And whoever doesn't listen to that prophet, I will require it of him. And who was the prophet? Jesus. Yes. And uh, she took the card. She, I put it on a three-by-five card. She took it. And I'm praying she came to faith in Christ. John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said, and that was 700 years before John was born. John's response was more than a humble confession. John said, well, you know, I'll tell you who I am. I'm here by God's design. I'm here because of him. John shifted the focus so often, had to do it, away from himself and on to the Lord Jesus Christ. His message, as well as the message of Isaiah prophesying of John's coming was, prepare or make straight the way of the Lord. In other words, what John was saying is, the Messiah is coming. And you and I know who Jesus is. He's the one left to go. He's coming. He's coming, John would say to the people of Israel. And, and you have to be prepared in your hearts to receive him. Because people had all kinds of expectation. Who is Jesus? Remember the question? People are trying to get answered today. He's the glorious Son of God who left the glories of heaven, who came down to give his life and pay the price for the sins of the people of Israel. So John was there to prepare the hearts of those who would see Jesus. Okay, And the preparing of their hearts was like the preparing for the arrival of a monarch back in that day where the roads had to be smoothed out and, and filled in and obstacles taken away so that the monarch, the king, could come in and address the people. Well, John made preparation for Jesus by saying, our hearts have to be ready for Jesus Christ. You see, yes, he's the king of kings and he's the lord of lords, but he comes to deal with our sins and so he preached a baptism for remission of sins that terminology is in John's gospel and if you want to meet the Messiah the son of God your heart has to be ready and uh, that was John's message in other words he was the witness to the light 
and again, we're the witness, we're the witnesses to the light today. It says in John 1, 7, This man, John the Baptist, came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Now, if we go back to the Luke 3 passage, uh, the passage that was read this morning, Luke chapter 3, you will notice that there's a very interesting little statement here in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, a very interesting little statement in verse 2. It says, And when Ananias and Caiaphas were high priests in Israel, the word of the Lord came to John. You see, for 400 years prior to this, God had not spoken to the nation of Israel through the prophets. Malachi is the last prophet mentioned in the Old Testament. And uh, for 400 years, there was no message from God to the people of Israel. And then John shows up because the word of the Lord, the word of God, came to John. He had a prophetic message, and his message was the Messiah is coming, and he'll be here soon. It's, it's interesting when people look at John, God's messenger, they see that he didn't go into Jerusalem and say this. He was out in the desert, in the wilderness. And people say, why was John out there? And you remember what he was wearing? What was it? Camel's hair coat. And he was eating uh, steak and mashed potatoes. <laughs> oh, I got that wrong. <laughs> Locusts and wild honey. <laughs> Honey's good for us. But uh, I don't know about the locusts. Just for the fun. Anybody here ever eat a locust? I didn't think so. <laughs> okay, so why is he out in the desert in the wilderness? Why didn't he go into Jerusalem where the Jewish leaders were? Because he was not about to revamp the religion of that day. He didn't come to revamp Judaism. He came to say that the Messiah, the Son of God, has come and he's going to take care of your hearts. And he will forgive your sins. And he will give you life. Eternal life. And so therefore he went out into the wilderness. He declared his message. And people came. In fact the message from John. First you have the message to John from God. The message from John is found in Matthew chapter 3. Where John says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact um, John's message is so simple. And so easy to remember that it can be summarized in the one word, repent. Repent of your sins and turn to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to end by saying if we would use one word today to lead people to Christ, well, I, thinking myself, I would say probably the word believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be Right. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved from hell and be able to go to heaven, right? So that would be one of the key words that we could use. Larry Moyer, evangelist from Dallas Seminary, he says um, he likes the word reconcile. He likes the word reconcile because, you see, people who don't know the Lord, they're, they're involved in life and the activity of life and they're very busy and doing all kinds of things, but they're not reconciled to God. And so he says um, that the word reconciled, God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And we say to people, you can be reconciled to God. You can know the Lord in a personal way.
And you can have a relationship with God so that when you drive out of this parking lot, you're talking to the Lord. When you wake up in the morning, you say, Lord, guide me this day. You can have a relationship. You can be reconciled to God. But people who have never had their sins forgiven and come to the cross, they're not reconciled to God. Well, John's one word was the word repent. And it's an interesting word and very uh, purposefully used in that day because the people of Israel thought, well, because we're Jews, because we're the children of Abraham, we're automatically going to heaven. (laughs) But they weren't. They weren't. That's why John said to the people, you must repent of your sin. You must acknowledge what your sin is. And when he talked about acknowledging their sin, he meant that he wanted to be sure that they understood they were to be sorry for their sin and willing to turn to Christ, the Messiah, for forgiveness. Now this word repentance is used a lot today. Some people avoid the word like a plague, but it's a good word that's used often in the New Testament. And that we as well, uh, even in the book of Revelation, says to, when speaking to believers, are, we're to repent. In other words, when we sin, we don't lose our salvation. As believers, when we sin, we, we are to repent of our sin, we're to be sorry for our sin, and we're to say, Lord, I, need, I confess my sin, I need your forgiveness. It means, the word repent means to have a change of mind, metanoia, to have a change of mind. Now, in 2 Corinthians 7, and this is really, if you're really into this word, repent, I'm, yeah, repentance, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 7, you'll see that the Lord talks about this through the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10. Paul is saying, and he was dealing with the Corinthian believers with regards to someone in the fellowship who was living in sin. And this fella turned back to the Lord and repented of their, his sin. And, and so the Apostle Paul says, now I want you to restore this one. Here's a man who sinned, but he confessed his sin. I want you to restore this man into fellowship with the Lord. But he talks about the repentance that was needed in the body. Verse 9. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. See, at first, there was this sinning believer in the fellowship, and everybody said, well, that's all right, you know. Let's not worry about it, the fact that he's sinning. And uh, we, we need to be careful when a brother or sister in Christ sins. We, we don't want to put them down. We want to restore them, don't we? Don't we want to restore somebody who falls into sin? It's very important, right? Vitally important. But this in the Corinthian assembly... They had a lot of problems. Some of you have gone through 1 Corinthians. <laughs> and um, wow. Now he's saying, wow. They turned and they repented. Now watch verse 9 again. I'm going to repeat it. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, a change of mind. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly, watch this contrast in verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now here's the difference, okay? A Christian is sorry for his or her sin, 
and it leads to repentance and a change of mind. And a Christian who repents of sin says, thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. We could all do that today. <laughs> There's sins that the Lord has forgiven all of us of. The repentance of a believer, the sorrow of a believer for sin leads to good things. But the sorrow of the world, notice it leads to death. Now that's very sad, isn't it? It's very sad. People who don't know Christ and don't know the forgiveness of Christ can get so down, and you hear a lot about this today, committing suicide because of sorrow over something, taking one's own life. Notice the sorrow of the world leads to death. But the sorrow that happens in the life of a believer through, by the way, the conviction of the Holy Spirit causes us as believers to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, yeah, I, I did that. I did. And I'm sorry for that sin. And I want you to forgive me. We know this verse so well. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. And see, if, if you find yourself sometimes thinking about sins of the past that you know are forgiven. It's not the Lord's bringing that up to you, by the way. It's the enemy of your soul. He's called in the book of Revelation the accuser, the accuser of the brethren, Revelation chapter 19. So God's not doing that. And Satan wants to get us defeated and he wants us to be discouraged. He wants us to have the sorrow of the world. When we sin, we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, here's what I've done. And we confess our sin and He's faithful and just to forgive us and our sins are forgiven. And there are a lot of people who need to hear this message. There are a lot of teenagers who they've, they've done things displeasing to God and they need to know and hear that God will forgive them and they can move on. Don't they need to hear that? Very much so. Very quickly, moving along. Repentance. And, of course, the motive for John's telling the people of Israel, specifically who he went to as the messenger of God, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because the king was coming. Jesus was coming. It wouldn't be long before Jesus would come forth in his public ministry. And they would see the salvation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. How awesome. And those who would accept Christ would become part of the kingdom of God. Uh, the spiritual kingdom of God. In fact, the interesting thing is the kingdom of God was described in the Old Testament and most people thought that when the Messiah came the first time that he would defeat Israel and, uh, pardon me, defeat Rome and, and Israel would become the head of the nations and not the tail. But Jesus didn't come to bring political deliverance. He, br he came to bring spiritual deliverance. And technically speaking, if the nation of Israel had accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah, the kingdom would have come as it is described in the Old Testament. They didn't do that. They rejected the king. They rejected John the Baptist. And they rejected Jesus, hung him on a cross. But he's coming again, as we heard earlier in the service today. John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very quickly now, the goal of John's ministry and the goal of our ministry is found in that reference in John 3.30 
where John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. His challenge was to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. His goal was for people to understand the superiority of Jesus Christ, that there's absolutely no one like him. He's the only one that can deliver us and give us freedom from sin. Jesus Christ is the Word. John the Baptist was a voice. He said, 123 of John, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Word, reveals God. He's the Word of God. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Who is Jesus Christ? Wow. If you could put together that little answer on those um, artificial information machines... You would say, Jesus Christ is God the Son. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the bridegroom, but John was the best man. John chapter 3, verses 26 through 30. In Jewish weddings at that time, the friend of the bridegroom arranged all the details of the wedding. That doesn't happen today, but it did back in that day. The focus of attention was on the bridegroom. The focus of attention for John the Baptist was on Jesus Christ. And he was just a friend. He was like the best man in a wedding service. And furthermore, Jesus is the light and John was a lamp. And that's spelled out in John chapter 5. As well as John chapter 1, which we read previously, he himself was not the light, John the Baptist. But he came as a witness to the light. And that's what you and I are as believers. We are witnesses to the light of Jesus Christ. And uh, we have a great privilege. All the songs that we sang this morning, almost every one of them, were of the the task unfinished. What task? Of getting people to know Christ. And, And, of course, the great challenge is God wants to use us, doesn't he? We have neighbors without Christ. We have people we work with. We have relatives without Christ. And they need the Lord. They really do. And, and without Christ, they're headed for an eternity separated from God, eternal darkness in the lake of fire. It's, it's a terrible place for people to be. But we, again, can be used by the Lord to win people to Jesus Christ. I saw just recently this um, eight things that we can do <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> to win people to Jesus Christ. And uh, these are going to sound like, uh, well, they're not really, uh, they're kind of this, that, and the other. (laughs) That's right, they're this, that, and the other. Let me read them off real quick. The first suggestion, and the, the, the one that wrote this is very burdened, that we as believers reach others for Christ. Don't miss this. Don't miss these. Number one, eat with non Christians. We eat three meals a day. Why not make a habit of sharing one of those meals with a non-Christian? Maybe not every day, of course. But what about once a week? Where we find someone who doesn't know Jesus and we say, hey, let's go grab a burger. And then you have that opportunity to share the Lord Jesus Christ. Eat with non-Christians. Second one, walk, don't drive. <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. In our culture, we do drive a lot. We get out of our house and we go into our car 
we drive somewhere, and our neighbors, we hardly, I'm trying to work on this, especially after I saw this, knowing I was going to share it with you. Um, I'm trying to do better in talking longer with my neighbors. We get out of the house, we go into the car, we go here. We go back, we go into pulling our garages, zip down the door, and we go into the house. Walk, don't drive. I like how he states it. He states the fact that uh, walk through your neighborhood. Walk around your apartment complex. Instead of driving to the mailbox uh, or convenience store or, or, or the apartment office, walk to the mall. Go walk to get your groceries. Walk. <laughs> Take your dog with you. I don't have one. Make friends. Take an interest in your neighbors. Do you, do you see what this individual is trying to say, though, really? He's doing a good job. Um, a couple more. Hobby with non-Christians. Pick a hobby that you can share. Get out and do something you enjoy with others, like biking, canoeing. You can borrow my canoe if you want to. I have one I haven't used in a long time. Canoeing, biking, other things. Talk to your coworkers. Take your breaks with intentionality. Go out of your team or task force after work. I'm um, pardon me. It says go out with your team or task force after work. Show interest in your coworkers. Pick four or five of them and pray for them. Yellow cards. Volunteer with nonprofits. Take a Saturday, maybe one a month or one every other month. Serve your city. Spend time with your church family, doing working on projects to reach others for Christ. Love your city. Pray for your city. Participate in it. And the last one he mentions is um, serve your neighbors. These are good ones he wrote down. Weed eating, mowing, fixing a car. Wow. They're good suggestions, aren't they? Really are. They're good suggestions. And some of you do this, by the way. I've heard in our fellowship of people who have helped others in very interesting ways. And it's amazing how God will use your witness when you reach out in serving to those who need the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was filled by the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. We as believers, we need to be constantly praying, Lord, I want the control of your Holy Spirit in my life. Your Holy Spirit lives within me. Fill me. Use me today for your glory. John the Baptist was obedient to the Word of God. He desired to fulfill God's Word in his life. Likewise, we want to pray like the psalmist did. Lord, order my steps in your Word and let not iniquity have dominion over me. Lord, help me when I read the Bible to put it to work in my life. Thirdly, John the Baptist was humble. His purpose was to encourage others to know Christ, the King. He was very humble about it. And we, we need to be humble too. G John said, After me one is coming who is mightier than I am, and I'm not even worthy to untie the tongues of his sandals. Very interesting. 
And also, he shared God's Word with others. And you and I know there's a famine in America today with regards to the Scriptures. Multitudes of people don't know just even the basics of the Bible, the Word of God. Not even the basics. And lastly, he was, had such a compassion for Christ that he witnessed for Christ. He said, here's the one coming after me who will give you life, who will forgive your sins, who will be your Lord and your Savior. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I think let's close in prayer and let's ask the Lord to use us in bringing others to faith in Christ.